them to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're still in the series, Becoming a People of Prayer. We're taking an extra look at what we started last week, and we're going to do that by looking in Matthew chapter 18. So if you do not have your Bible with you this morning, there should be one right in the back of that pew in front of you. I would encourage you to get that out because the main text is not going to be put on the overhead behind me. The philosopher Schopenhauer gave an often quoted example of porcupines trying to get through a cold winter night. You see, they huddle together for warmth, he says, but their sharp quills prick each other. So they pull away, but then they get cold. And they have to keep adjusting their closeness, a distance, to keep from freezing and from getting pricked by their fellow porcupines who are both their source of comfort and pain. Schopenhauer says that they're forever coming together and moving apart in a, in a slow dance. Now this might not be, quite honestly, a bad metaphor for the church. Now friends, listen. Aren't you like me? Can't you say this with me? That when we are around each other a great deal, it's almost inevitable that we hurt one another. This truth is why we need to learn how to forgive each other from the heart. It's a forgiving spirit that we're talking about. And it characterizes, listen to this, it characterizes the new nature of a Christian. Jesus did model this. After being unjustly convicted on trumped up charges, he was beaten. He was mocked. He was nailed to a cross and Even from the cross, you remember this, right? He looked down on his tormentors, on his executioners, and he asked his father to forgive them. How about Stephen from Acts? He followed Christ's example. In the midst, can you imagine this? In the midst of being stoned to death because he preached the gospel, he fell onto his knees and he begged God to forgive his killers. Joseph, whose own brothers sold him into slavery, caused him years of suffering. He forgave them with great weeping. What about David? David was pursued by King Saul, trying to be, King Saul tried to assassinate him repeatedly, and yet David continued to forgive him. We're going to take a look this morning, a second look at what Jesus meant when he taught us to pray. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now you remember, if you were here last week, we saw that every person has sinned. I don't think I've ever gotten an argument from anybody on that point. Everybody knows that they sin. And when we sin, we create a massive debt with God and we're unable, completely unable to repay it. And when we turn to Christ in faith, you remember we talked about this last week, God forgives us and he gives us salvation, but we continue to sin. We walk through this world of muck and dirt and we dirty our feet. And this sin, these dirty feet, they block our, our fellowship with our Father. And so we continue to confess our sins to him. And, but we need to know, and we learned this last week, that we have to extend that same forgiveness to those who sin against us. So here we are, verse 21 
of Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to see Peter asking, I think, a tremendous question. Here's what he says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, friends, this is a common question. That was a common question of that day. And it fueled a great deal of debate among the rabbis, the Jewish leaders. You see, the rabbis consistently taught that the limit... Now, you better listen. Some of you are really going to like this. You're going to have a little Jewishness in you. The limit of forgiveness is three times. After that, you break off fellowship. In fact, one rabbi said, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. Why? Because they believe the scriptures. By the way, if you want to know where in scriptures they got this, well, log on this week to my sermon notes. I've got it all down in the footnotes. They believe that the scriptures taught that God forgave three times. And then after that, he punished sinners for the fourth. So why exceed God's graciousness? So the rabbis concluded three times is the limit. But look at Peter. Peter exceeded the rabbis by more than double the amount. But still, he puts a limit on forgiveness. And Jesus says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now listen, all of us know this, don't we? That 490 times is not the limit to forgiveness. Jesus wasn't saying on the 491st time you cut off fellowship. It's a number that was so extreme to that day that the idea was there that there ought to be no limit to a believer's forgiving spirit. And so he gives him a parable. Now, normally, if you know me, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I kind of like to prefer preaching one, two, maybe on a good week, three, day, three words. This is extraordinarily difficult. We're going to hit a lot of words, but we're going to fly through them. I'm going to walk through this parable with you. What's a parable? You ready? A parable is a narrative. It's a story that contains one main point. The main point, you ready? I'm going to give you the, the Cliff's Notes version, and then we're going to unpack it. The main point is God has forgiven us so much that we are obligated to extend unlimited forgiveness to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he gives us three scenes in this riveting parable. Here we go. You ready? Get your outline out. Get your pencil, your pen ready. You might even want to do something strange and take a note or two and put it in your Bible. Scene number one. Here we go. The first scene, it's the extent of God's mercy for us. We're going to see this in verses 23 through 27. This is the opening scene. And it demonstrates the unimaginable display of God's mercy and the salvation of an undeserving sinner. You heard what I said, right? This first scene is about a person outside of Christ being forgiven of their massive sin and being brought into the kingdom of heaven. Here we go. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, all citizens of a monarchy are servants. You know that. 
Nothing complicated in that. Some of them were in positions of civic responsibility. What's this servant's job? He was a governor. And the governor's job was to collect the taxes and the tributes from the province that he oversaw, that he presided over. And here we see in verse 24, when the king began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now the scene's progressing. The king goes over the books with his accountants. And there he discovers that one of his governors, a man with a great responsibility, had shorted the royal treasury 10,000 talents. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? You might even have a little note in your Bible that it makes an equivalent value to today's economy. Let me tell you that that's impossible. You cannot accurately put that amount in today's economy. But 10,000 talents was an astronomical amount of money. Let me tell you how we know that. At one biblical period, a talent was worth 6,000 drachmas. Really interesting, isn't it? However, now listen, one drachma was a day's wage for a laborer. So 10,000 talents, ready, was worth 60 million days of labor. That's a lot of money. To be honest with you, it's more money than the king most likely would have had. The entire wealthy province of Galilee, you know how much that yielded every year by way of taxes and tributes? 300 talents. How about Judea? And if you combine Judea with The other two right around there, those provinces, it equals 600 talents a year. That's both Samaria, Idumea, plus Judea. But here's what's interesting. The Greek word for 10,000 friends was the largest number the Greek language was capable of. And you know what? When you translate it to the English, you get our word myriad. And the word myriad means countless. This was a countless amount of money. It was incalculable. It was an unpayable debt to his king. And it represents, friends, the debt that every single human being faces with God. You remember from last week in Matthew 6, verse 12, that the word debt meant that it was what we incur because of sin and that we're morally obligated to repay it. That's what Psalm 51.4 says, by the way, and the fact that all sin is, is against God, it's moral obligation, it's debt against God. Here's what it says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Friends, every sin that we commit, bar none, is done in God's sight as if we commit that sin right in front of his throne. It's against God and it creates an unpayable debt that must be paid. And when the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, that person faces, friends, listen, we've all been there, haven't we? The overwhelming fact that our debt is completely unpayable. Because not only is the amount too great, we don't even have the currency to pay it. So the parable goes on. Look at verse 25 with me. And since he could not pay, 
that his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Well, Jesus wouldn't say that. You know, the sale of a family as well as possessions was common in ancient times and it reveals the wrath that the king had toward this wicked, ungodly, treacherous official. The servant was legally bound to repay that debt, but the payment of his family and possessions, friends, it wouldn't have even come close to the amount that he owed. So what's the servant to do? Well, it tells us, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Friends, no person can pay the debt that their sins have incurred against God. It's utterly impossible. So the, per, the servant prostrates himself before the king. And friends, the king's heart was moved out of pity for him. But what's that word pity mean? Now, some of you, are gotta, you probably have got to be getting to the point. Why does he want to know what all these words mean? There's a lot of meaning in them. The word pity is powerful. It means to be moved. You want to know what it means? It means to be moved at the point of your bowels. It means to have such deep compassion that your stomach becomes nauseous and hurts. It's what Jesus felt, friends, by the way, when that widow was walking her dead son in that funeral procession out of Nain. It was what Jesus felt, according to scriptures, when he saw all the thousands of people following him and they had nothing to eat. It's what he felt, the Bible says, when the suffering and the lepers and the demon-possessed came before him for healing. The king felt pity for this man at the very center of who he was, and he completely wiped out the servant's unimaginable, unpayable debt. Now, can I tie this parable into a fact? Whether you know it or not, we are the servant. And we've been forgiven a debt that we could not pay. But the parable doesn't, go, doesn't stop there. It goes from awesome to worse. Scene number two. Not only are we seeing the extent of God's mercy, now we're going to see the abandonment of God's mercy. Look at verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. You know, King Louis Twelfth of France had a little saying. He said, nothing smells so sweet as a dead body of your enemy. Did somebody just say amen? That is just sick. This is the sentiment that an unforgiving, merciless, resentful heart produces. But look at the first word of verse 28. But. You know, that word's great. It's incredibly timely. It's comforting when it's used the way Ephesians 4, 2, verse 4 does. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. That's a great use of the word but. However, here in verse 28, it carries ominous and terrible overtones because it's a change in the flow. The governor received an unimaginable gift from the king. Friends, listen, you got to draw this out. He's not in debt anymore. You got to see this. It's not that the king gave him an extension of a month. It's not that he saw his misery and said, I'll give you another year to pay it. He wiped out the debt entirely. He was debt free, but refused to extend that mercy to others. Now look what it says. He found one of his fellow servants. He didn't happen to see him. The word means he went looking for this guy. He leaves the presence of the king having 10,000 talents, 60 million days worth of wages, gone in the blink of an eye, and he leaves the presence of the king and he goes looking for a man that owes him a hundred denarii. How much is a hundred denarii? Again, you can't equate that into our economic system. However, we know from scripture and we know from the Bible, biblical times that one denarius was worth one day's wages. So this is 100 days of wages for a laborer. Not minuscule by itself. It's almost a third of a year but completely inadequate in comparison with 60 million days of wages. And this wicked governor seizes him and begins to choke him. The word means to literally grab by the neck and throttle somebody. Some of you might think that Jesus is exaggerating here to make a statement. However, it wasn't uncommon in ancient Rome for a creditor to reach out and wrench a debtor's neck to get the money. In fact, Cicero, the Roman orator, once said, lead him to the judgment seat with a twisted neck. We just get harassed by phone calls when we get in debt and can't pay. These guys had them come to their home and grab them around the neck and take them to prison. The debtor begged him, but instead of receiving mercy, he received a prison sentence until he couldn't pay it back. Friends, listen, you couldn't earn money in prison. You know what this means, right? This is no longer for this wicked governor about money. This is about punishing someone who owed him money. It's hard for us to imagine Someone behaving in this way, but that's exactly the Lord's point to Peter and the disciples. Friends, listen, an unforgiving spirit is an unmerciful spirit, which comes from a self-righteous heart. Now, we all struggle with forgiving. When we do not forgive those who sin against us, we lock them into prison and punish them. You know what that means? It means that unforgiving Christians are prison wardens. When we harbor grudges, when we refuse to forgive, we put that person in prison. And friends, listen, we force them to earn our mercy. 
And when we hold grudges and we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us, we are doing exactly what the first servant did to the second. Pay me what you owe. I demand an apology. Give me my rights. Let me have what's coming to me. Treat me like I deserve. I demand to be treated with respect. Parents, don't you do this to your kids sometimes? I did this to my kids yesterday evening. I didn't even realize what I had done until this morning when I was preparing to preach. And I've got to go back and let my boys out of prison. We do this to one another. We demand that people live up to a standard that we don't even live ourselves. We could do this with our wives, men. We could do this with your husbands, ladies. In verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Friends, do you know unforgiving people? People that are resentful, bitter. I've had couples come into counseling so filled with bitterness that they've said, I don't even know if I love that person anymore. Grudges. Anger. Did you realize that we have a role to play in redemptive community? We can bring them and we ought to bring them to the king in prayer. They were greatly distressed, the fellow servants. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Have you ever reported a friend to the master? Pastor Dem, I don't tattle. Then you have a part in leaving your friend redemptively unchanged. We pray for them and we entrust them to the one who could deal with their heart. We report them to God and we entrust them into his wise care. But the parable is going to go from great to worse to awful. Scene number three, the requirement of God's mercy. Verse 32, then his master summoned him. This is the wicked servant said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You see, the first servant was brought to the king again. But this time judgment is going to be carried out. Why? Because the servant, despite receiving God's mercy, refused, chose to not give that same mercy to another person. He lived wickedly. You know, there's something interesting to me about the word mercy. It's the first time it's used in this passage, but the entire parable is about mercy. Here's what it means. It means to extend help to those who are suffering the consequences of sin. Friends, that's what mercy is. Grace is God's power to remove sin. Mercy is God's help for those who are suffering because of sin. See, the Jews understood that when God gave mercy to you, you must reciprocate it. But you can't give God mercy. Just like you can't forgive God. I hate it when people say that you've got to forgive God. That means God sinned. God never requires forgiveness. God can't require mercy. But because it's got to be reciprocated to the Jew, then mercy received from God must be given to other people.
Mercy is a quality that God expects from us to other people. Look what he says. Should not you have had mercy? It's your moral obligation, God said, to this wicked servant. I gave you mercy. You're morally obligated now to give that mercy to those who have sinned against you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. You know, I love that word jailers because it really means torturers. Now, friends, listen, it's the inquisitor, not the executioner. This is God's righteous anger, not his damning holy wrath. It's a major difference. The word jailers was used for one who elicits the truth by putting the victim to the rack. That's what it meant. You want to get the truth? Strap them to the rack. But there's a lot of torturers for the unmerciful, unforgiving spirit. Here's one, joylessness, a root of bitterness, Inability to feel love, depression, high blood pressure, joint pain, loneliness. These are just to name a few of the inquisitors, the torturers that God gives us over to. They imprison believers because the believers would not show mercy. But listen, beyond all of those that I just gave you, And an unforgiving believer will suffer the discipline of God. Why? Because of disobedient living. Do you remember that we have learned in our study of the Lord's Prayer to ask for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and that it would start with us? You see, God disciplines those he loves in order to drive them back to obedient living, which makes God's name hallowed, making his name great. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 12, for they, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Why? Look what it says. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, friends, just as the inquisitor would torture his victims until they fully disclosed the truth. God's torturers, God's discipline has us in order to bring us to the full confession of his truth. We've sinned. Unforgiveness is a sin. And until we have a change of heart and forgive our offending brother or sister, we remain out of fellowship with God. Jesus is saying that if a child of the heavenly father refuses to show mercy, all that is left, friends, is justice and judgment. It's what James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What are we saying? If we believers... Insist on justice for others who sin against us, withholding mercy, putting them in prison, then God will give us what we deserve, no mercy and no fellowship. Friends, do you know any miserable Christians? Do you know any miserable Christians? Are you one of them? You're not walking in the fellowship of God. Misery and sweet fellowship are incompatible. 
So verse 35 says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, we as Christians are to be marked by a quick and forgiving spirit. You know what John Wesley said about forgiveness in the church? He commented on the rarity of such mercy and grace among believers. And he wrote this, If this be Christianity, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, then where do Christians live? Because I can't find them. Forgiving your brother means to completely wipe out his debt. Doesn't mean forgetting the offense. I don't believe there's such a biblical thing as forgetting, forgiving, and forgetting it, but it means that when we remember the offense against us, it's not accompanied by resentment. There is no following of bitterness and anger that it once had. You want to see how this was displayed in the life of one person in a New Guinea tribe? This is a true story as far as I understand. It was a Sunday evening and a group of missionaries and believers in New Guinea, they gathered together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Listen to this. A young tribesman sat down to worship when suddenly a tremor passed through his body. And the missionary sitting right next to him whispered, what's wrong? What, what has troubled you? And the young man told him and pointed to a man who just came in. He said, that man who just came in killed and ate the body of my father. But now... He has come in to remember the Lord with us. And at first, I didn't know whether I could endure it, but it is all right now. He's washed in the same precious blood that I am. And he then participated in communion with the killer of his very own father. Friends, God's mercy, unimaginable, has wiped out our unpayable debt and morally obligated us to give that same mercy to one another. To do otherwise is to fall out of fellowship with God. Can I ask you this morning? I don't know where you're at in this area of forgiveness. I might be speaking to the choir this morning, but I kind of suspect I'm not. Are you resentful of somebody? It's your heart grown bitter. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a sibling or your children or a neighbor, a coworker. Maybe even somebody right in this church. Friends, you are morally obligated just as I am to extend the same forgiveness of God to them. And to do otherwise is to imprison that person and punish them and make them earn your mercy. That is not the way we ought to live. Let me encourage you this morning to begin praying for God's mercy to flood your heart so badly, so fully, that you cannot help but give it to other people. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Father, for all that you have shown us in your word, this is so easy to preach and so difficult to live. Lord, we struggle when people hurt us. I struggle to show mercy. 
But Lord, we need to. We are morally obligated to demonstrate it. It's the mark of a Christian. And to not do it, Lord, is to put that person in prison and punish them. And Lord, I pray that we would not do that. Help us to let them out of prison. Help us to show mercy to them and forgive them from our heart. Thank you in Jesus' name.